0: Since this is a podcast called Historically Thinking, it seems only right and proper to spend some time talking about historical thinking, what it is, why we need to do it, and how we can do it. In fact, our very first episode, back in what what I'm thinking of as series one, was a conversation with my friend and colleague and co-writer, Lendel Calder, about historical thinking, and we've done it a few times since. In the second series of the podcast, I intend to do it uh, much more often than I have before. To that end, my first guest in the second series is Peter Burkholder, an award-winning authority on the teaching of history and on what's called SOTL, the scholarship of teaching and learning, particularly that of history. Peter Burkholder is a professor of history at Fairleigh Dickinson University in North Jersey. He is a medievalist by training, and that is focusing on the history of the European Middle Ages. Most of our conversation will be centered on a recent paper of his titled "Quia Difficilia Sunt." The Pedagogical Benefits of a Challenging Middle Ages. And could you translate that Latin tag for the uh, classically uneducated, Peter?
1: Sure, sure. That's a segment from um, the Roman writer Seneca. And it means because these things are difficult. So that's, the idea behind Seneca,
0: what a What a heart case he was. Y- yeah, there we go.
1: <laughs> so who
0: can argue with him, right? Stoics. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Stoics say, Stoic philosophy summarized is bring it on. <laughs> exactly. so, so you begin the article by discussing, uh, deliberate practice. Um, you're speaking to other teachers of medieval history and you are, give some examples of deliberate practice. So let's, 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 let's work through those. Um, what are some examples of deliberate? Practice? You, you use Benjamin Franklin playing chess and who else?
1: Um, I use a story of a man named, um, Uh, Charles Batia, whom I don't know, but he's a writer down in Atlanta, and he wrote about his trials and tribulations of trying to run a sub-five-minute mile. Um, And what he ended up doing in order to reach that goal very much fit the parameters of deliberate practice. Now, deliberate practice, this is not a term that I came up with. I came across it when I was reading a book by Um, A professor of psychology at Florida State his name is Anders Ericsson Uh, and Anders Anders is the undisputed expert on expertise
0: Yeah, I I think half of all podcasts are either about are either comedy podcasts or about expertise I'm just I'm just (laughs) spitballing here, but Anders Ericsson (laughs) comes up a lot in the podcast universe Okay, Malcolm Gladwell made him famous
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, although Malcolm Gladwell actually uh, misused some of Anders Ericsson's findings. Very so there's nice. some irony there. Yeah. Um, the, the more famous recent book by Angela Duckworth, Grit, um, she also uses that that term. So this is something it was new to me, but it's when I read it, it just immediately made sense.
0: So people will be uh, familiar with the mistaken Malcolm Gladwell take on it, on Anders Ericsson, which is the 10,000 hours Exactly. Uh, hypothesis, or, on, or yes. falsehood, is that we need 10,000 hours uh, you know, to do something and do it well.
1: Yeah, to become an expert, a minimum 10,000 hours. And, and it's not that simple. And actually, Erickson says that it's probably going to take you a lot more than 10,000 yeah. hours. Uh, and even if you put that time in, there's no guarantee you're going to become an expert. On the contrary, um, if you don't do the right sort of practice – You're going to plateau very quickly. And that's the Um,
0: example of Ben Franklin in chess. Simply put, Ben Franklin had no coaches. Exactly. He was doing it through brute force.
1: Yeah. uh, And a problem for him is he didn't have access to the people that would have allowed him to to partake in deliberate practice. Because uh, I'm not a chess player. But apparently what you need to become a very good chess player is you need to observe – the games and movements of chess masters and you need to get their movements into what we call long-term memory so that you can draw on that database uh when you're playing and ben franklin just didn't have access to those observations at least not very long he did spend time in europe um and he played chess but uh no so he he plateaued very quickly he had no chess column in the pennsylvania gazette with chess problems and famous
0: moves and things like that 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 sort of Oh, did they still have them in newspapers? I mean, since I haven't picked up a newspaper for years, I wouldn't know. Yeah, good point. But and I, not were, being a
1: chess player, right, yeah, I don't they pay were attention. These but... utterly
0: cryptic things I used to study as a kid and said, mm, No, yeah, so he didn't have any of that. Um, but there are guy who wanted to run the five minute mile. How old was he when he decided he wanted to do that?
1: I, I was- Oh, but yeah, so he was in his early thirties. Uh and he was an he was an athletic guy to begin with. But um yeah, sub five minute mile, uh that's no mean feat. The vast majority of people cannot do that. And he ran a benchmark mile uh to begin with, and it was something like, you know, six thirty Uh, So he had a ways to go, and so he figured, well, I'll just do the math, you know, um, maybe 74 seconds per lap on a 400-meter course, and, you know, a miracle, I run a sub-five-minute mile. Uh, So we tried that, and it just didn't work. Um, And he learned that in order to do this, he was going to need a tremendous amount of help. He was going to need the coaching and advising and mentoring of an expert. Yeah. So that's one of the hallmarks of deliberate practice is it calls on the skills of an expert to teach it. And it works towards a number of very well-defined and specific goals. And it requires a lot of feedback and modification. And as people partake in deliberate practice, they develop what Erickson calls mental representations. And this allows them to self-monitor and self-correct. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this is, I love the examples um, of the chess and the um and the running uh i've when teaching writing or teaching history in in just the same way i've fallen back on athletic examples and i was not an athlete in high school or even college Uh, i've come to it very late in life but i've started lifting weights i've started using barbells and Mm -hmm. um and I I'd fenced him when I was in my twenties. So they, uh, it's a very helpful, especially way of explaining. And it's much more integrated with the intellectual life than I think most intellectuals realize. I mm-hmm. um, agree. The models and the messages are. Um, I can teach in some ways. I think I can teach football players and baseball players who understand training and discipline. I think I have a leg up with them in doing the sort of work that we're going to be talking about and in doing the sort of t- intellectual training uh, yeah, that yeah. I don't always have with the classic nerd uh, who, yeah. who, who might just think that they're naturally gifted and therefore talented and, you know, so therefore give me an A.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I come from well, – I, I used to compete as a triathlete um, and I come from a swim background. And in swimming, we used to always say practice makes permanent – And yeah, that was not meant as a good thing because form is so important in swimming and if you are not using the right form, you are actually, you know, you're going to do more harm than good. So, you know, deliberate practice in swimming would um, entail doing a lot of drills. Yes. And nobody likes doing drills. No. Nobody looks forward to that. And no penis uh, likes
0: playing chopsticks. No one oh, does exactly. It, but everyone has to do fingering exercises to achieve yeah. mastery. Um, right. It's like I realized I was going to kill myself with bad form, lifting weights, and by watching other people lifting barbells. Um, so, you have to be a coach. Yeah, you know, she's 30 pounds, ring wet, but she can deadlift 350, and she knows
1: what to do. one um, well, another and another thing that Erickson says is that um, to partake in deliberate practice, you are going to have to put in bouts of what he calls near maximal effort, mm-hmm. uh, and you know yeah. you, you can only do these efforts, um, you know, for short bursts. But, you know, again, in something like swimming, you're going to have to do sprints. Charles Batia's case, when he was trying to run that sub five minute mile, he was having to run hill repeats and do um, sprints on the track. And these are the sorts of things that will tear you inside out physically and mentally. And what um, Erickson found, and this was a defining feature across all of his experts, is that deliberate practice and especially these near maximal efforts, these are not enjoyable. Nobody he talked to enjoyed partaking in this stuff, and it didn't matter if they were kids. He um, examined spelling bee champions, and uh, they would partake in a, a form of deliberate practice, and none of them liked it. Yeah, um, I mean, all these athletes, you know, um, it, it's it's the same. It's a yeah, recurring trend.
0: It is. I want to get and I want to get back to that because I had an interesting conversation with my uh, my wife today as we were going going to work, and she was we were discussing that. Um, okay. But uh, the. One of the things I, I realized, and I don't know if you mentioned, I don't think you mentioned that. I was thinking of, um, you know, what the teacher owes the student and what the student owes the teacher. And, mm-hmm. um, of course, and it, athletes are much more apt to have this with a coach is what we would call docility. Um, mm-hmm. the, the ability to listen to the coach and do what seems crazy and the trust that you will have a better time uh, on in your triathlon, uh, mm-hmm. or for, that you will get closer towards uh, bursting through the five-minute mile, uh, mm-hmm. that you will have a better lunge, that you will be able to deadlift more. There's requires sometimes, in that midst of that uh, that pain and suffering, it requires the ability to be docile and mm-hmm. to be a good student, and um, that seems to me, we'll get to this, that's less psychological and more cultural. Uh, OK. Um, let's uh, So deliberate practice is not just a lot of time. It's um, being coached and doing repeating in a certain particular ways. So, is that the accretion of mundane acts, you quote Angela Duckworth saying?
1: Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, and it's putting it all together in the right way, too. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of thing that takes either a coach or a mentor of some sort. Yes.
0: So um, critical thinking. Uh, you point out that uh, all faculty agree. That uh, critical thinking is very important. In fact, 99% of respondents, and not to be cynical or anything, that <laughs> anytime 99% of all professors agree on something, it must be invalid. Um, I, I'm suspicious. So what do you think people mean by critical thinking?
1: Right. Well, that stat, of course, comes from, it was reported in a book by uh, Richard Aram and Joseph Auroke's, uh Academically Adrift, and that was based on a national survey that was yeah. conducted years back of right. faculty. And right, you know, 99 percent. That, that never happens with no. faculty. No. Uh, yeah, so what is it? I mean, that's a real problem. It's kind of like nailing jello to the wall, right? Mm-hmm. A- everybody has their different definition of it. Um, I know some people take a very narrow view of it um, saying, well, like a logic course, that's the only thing that can possibly approach critical thinking. Uh, I think a lot of us would take, uh, you know, a much more pedestrian view of this sort of thing, but, um, without trying to, to define it, I mean, I can get into that with history, but it manifests itself in different ways in different fields. So I don't think there's you know, just a, a critical thinking blanket definition that covers all things. Um, I mean, I did a math degree as an undergrad. I don't know what critical thinking is in math. Um, I, I really don't. I mean, we, we did a lot of problem solving, but I don't think you can necessarily equate problem solving with, uh, with critical thinking.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think it probably, sh- whatever we're talking about is probably called thinking. Um, and I <laughs> just think, like you. I, I've i never liked the critical uh, word part, addition. Um, and I, I do suspect it, I, there's nothing wrong with the logic course, although I'm not persuaded that symbolic logic is going to be a great deal of help um, to me if I'm not a com- programming a computer. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I, I know there are philosophers that have a very different attitude on that. Um, I've taught with them. But it does seem to me there is such a thing as uh, thinking, uh, historical thinking. So, yes. um, what in your interpretation would be uh, historical thinking?
1: Well, that's where, you know, if I think about critical thinking in history, that's where I'm mostly thinking about historical thinking. I think historical thinking really embodies a lot of what I would consider critical thinking in the field. So a lot of this is coming from the work, of course, of Sam Weinberg and um, you know his historical thinking and and other unnatural acts. And that unnatural part, I think that's very important. Um, it's uh, oftentimes entails students doing things that um, you know go against their natural inclinations. Um, it brings it evokes such um, terms as, Um, That Ken Bain uses in his book of expectation failure, you know, where what students bring to the class uh, is not going to be sufficient for what they need to do there. So anyway, in uh, historical thinking, I kind of break it down into two things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, other people would would disagree with this. They would add other things, take some out. But the first part I would say is um, a person's, you know, willingness to embrace the ambiguity of primary sources, um, the artifacts that are left behind from people you know, long ago who maybe partook in the events or witnessed them or heard them second, third hand, uh, that these things are inherently hazy. Uh, and for students to read like historians, they have to recognize that and need to be able to deal with it. Now, that takes a long time. I work with students, history majors, through four years worth of classes, and even at the end of four years. They're not experts in this stuff. If they want to become experts, they're going to have to go through grad school, and you know, then probably um, work as a professor for a few years, and then there we are at about the ten thousand hour threshold. Thereabouts, <laughs> you know. Um, the second part I would say is an ability to weigh the merits of conflicting evidence-based arguments. So there, we're getting into secondary sources, what we would call historiography. Um, or how we remember the past. And how we remember the past and the stories we tell about the past uh, oftentimes differ from you know, some sort of objective reality. So what do we do in those cases? Um, so I hit students with these issues you know, starting freshman year Uh, and it needs to be repeated year after year after year. This isn't something that people just nail the first time down. they got to struggle with it. And there there are, you know, of course I've got to give them uh, methods for how to do it. I have to be giving them that constant feedback. And like Erickson says, they'll be able to develop, you know, mental representations as they work their way through it. And finally they'll see, okay, so I'm writing a paper on this. This part of it is weak. OK, so I need to go back and, and work on this. That's that's the hope anyway. Yeah. But these these issues are, you know, intrinsic and they're authentic to the field of history of history. So if we're going to be teaching an authentic history course, we need to introduce the complexity and ambiguity of, say, historiography and primary source analysis.
0: Yeah. The you say in the essay, you explain a very helpful concept that uh, mathematics, for example, is well structured uh, and those areas, such as mathematics, are well structured. Uh, science is well structured. Um, however, hist- history is not. It is loose. It is baggy. It has lots of parts popping out. Yeah. Um, to continue the metaphor, and that's, I think that's, um, you know, culturally that is problematic for people. Um, there's always that. Well, how can you know anything? I mean, I, 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 at least the way I'm teaching, by the end of the second week. That's what students are asking me.
1: Uh, exactly. You, you get into issues of what we call epistemology. That is, how do we know what we say we know? Um, is it just a matter of, well, you know, early civilizations start along riverways? Okay, you know, fact. But how do we know that? How do we know that that's, <laughs> that's the right. case? And yeah. that's, you know, this that's a, a classic problem that I work with students in a freshman level class. Um, and that is a, a much taller order than just saying, okay, here's something, know it. Tell it back to me.
0: Yeah, I just but, recorded a podcast with Adrian Goldsworthy uh, about his book on Hadrian's Wall. And of course, we don't, turns out, we don't really know what the wall was for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, what was it supposed to do? Well, you know, it's, uh, and, and he uh, quoted to me in the course of the conversation of one uh, preeminent archaeologist of Hadrian's Wall. He had said to, uh, you know, the more I do on this, the more I'm confused. And the archaeologist says, yeah, that's good. Um, so yeah, this guy's exactly. entire life has been studying the wall, and he just gets more confused about its ultimate purpose. I mean, why is this wall so big here? You know, what's the threat? Uh, you know, why is there the wall along the between the Danube and the Rhine so small and primitive compared to Hadrian, et, et cetera, et cetera? You know, it's very, very confusing. Uh, it's baggy. It's ill kempt
1: Yeah, and I think that is a marker of expertise too when you realize the limitations. Of what you know, or what we can know, um, and a lot of students don't don't think that way, especially beginning students. They have a dualist mindset: things either are or they aren't. There's no gray area.
0: Yeah, that's why um, uh, when Lyndall Calder and I, and when we, um, when I'm, I borrowed this from him, like a lot of things I, I do when I'm teaching uh, history, uh, I think the final sort of move of seven moves that we want to see in students is humility, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. That's hard enough to, that's hard to find in professionals, let alone undergraduates. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) um, But it is, that is a necessary final intellectual move is uh, I think humility. Mm -hmm. Um, So you point out that the hard realities of deliberate practice, um, one of them is, is that um, confusing people has learning benefits, but they don't like you. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not based on my findings. That was yeah. a researcher named Derek right. Muller, but um, you know we put that under the rubric of confusion studies. Uh, and yeah, he found out that a certain amount of confusion actually has pedagogical benefits. Now, you wouldn't want to confuse people so much that they just lose all hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, if somebody asks the question, answering the question with another question, for example, that puts it back on the learner. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the sort of thing that can frustrate learners but it's actually probably a good thing. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, thinking, uh, getting better at anything, if you want to get better at something, it's going to be inherently hard. Uh, there, there's just no two ways about it. And
0: then you quote a bunch of, of writers uh, talking about Stephen King, Amy Poehler. Um, I, I get what I get out of uh, talking about how hard writing is and um, how hard thinking is. And what I get out of that is that, you know, if you do it right, like anything else, it's work. Uh, yeah, writers do whine a lot of, about working. Um, I, maybe most of us who are writers or some sort of writers, um, maybe we thought it was going to be easy. But uh, I often think, man, this is a lot more like farming than I thought. Um,
1: <laughs> it's, this is. The- I, I agree 100 percent. When I'm working on manuscripts, um, you know, when I'm in the moment, It's hard. It's frustrating. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're done and if you're, you're happy with what you produced, okay, then there's a certain amount of elation there, but, um, you know, getting people to think about how they feel in the moment, well, that's the type of thing that it's very hard to get at. But when people are honest with themselves, yeah, it's not a lot of fun. And there's,
0: yeah, there's (laughs) such romanticism, mostly encountered in first year students. Um, the belief that they're going to wait until they get inspiration, um, uh, their weight that they're going to there's going to be some the daimon will descend upon them and everything's going to pour out um, yeah and, and, and graduate students believe that too god help them god help them and um, yeah and the fact is it's uh they're like it's not we're not clipper ships we're um tramp steamers um <laughs> kind of rusty don't look so great but they do about 15 you know mile they do about 10 knots an hour each and every day
1: yeah That's good cool. analogy yeah. well and some of it, you know this comes out of. of... Cognitive psychology, too. Um, you know, Daniel Willingham, who's at University of Virginia, a very well-known um, expert on these matters, uh, he points out, among others, that, look, our brain is designed not to think. Uh, <laughs> our brain is mostly designed, you know, to just regulate um, our, our basic health from moment to moment. A tremendous amount of our brain is devoted to um division, yeah. which is probably why a lot of students think they're you know, so-called visual learners uh, when such a thing probably doesn't exist, right. but um, it's designed not to think, and it's very hard and unenjoyable when we do think. Uh, so this isn't, you know, I can see this certainly, but I'm glad to know that this is actually based up by or, or backed up by some, some pretty good uh, mm-hmm. science.
0: The um, excruciating efforts, uh, this is, I, I referred to this, I was talking about this with my wife, and um, so you can be in a educational program that really emphasizes rigor and um hard work. Mm-hmm. And yet there is um and, and, and she's in such a program, and yet there's of course there's always a countervailing tendency, and I felt it too, that um you then you get compassionate or you want to say let up. You want to um You want to sort of give in just at the moment when they should really be training hard. That's partly human, but I think it's also partly cultural. Um, It's, as she put it, it's a response to distress. So there's a certain cultural response to distress we have. We don't like seeing the kids in distress. Yeah. um, uh, In a way that I think, God knows, my father and certainly my grandfather would find puzzling. And on higher education campuses, I think this is, is, this is even more so. Um, say what you will about all the things swirling around college campuses, but there is a deep desire to prevent distress on the part of undergraduates, often for very pragmatic uh, reasons of marketing and, and business, quite frankly. Um, there are plenty of president, college presidents who don't want to cause distress to the customers.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. Your
0: response. <laughs> Other with, oh, okay, no doubt. It's as simple as that. Okay. Um,
1: yeah, no, I, I think that is all. You know, there's um, sort of a, a, a customer service um, Mindset that has infiltrated, you know, the academy, but well, part of it we are is, terrified of
0: losing students. And yeah, and that's true. Oh, history, I mean, you know, yeah, history, history. enrollments. Have, exactly. Yeah,
1: plummeted, you know that as well as I do. Um, and, I, you know, a lot of this is learned too. I'm I'm not necessarily blaming the students that if they've come from, you know, a K through 12 situation where they were mostly just having fun and they got good grades. Why would they change? Exactly. Or even in college level courses, you know, a lot of college level courses, Aram and Roksa were finding out that, well, their critical thinking abilities don't don't go anywhere during college. Uh, If you look at surveys of employers and where college students are falling apart, well, basic things like communication, you know, that a college grad is a very poor writer. So a lot of times they're clearly not being pushed very hard. Um, and I think a lot of times it, it's a logical response from students to say, well, you know, why should I put in all sorts of efforts if I really don't need to?
0: Yeah. And it, it, this is what my, my only, I think, addition to your argument. like a separate paper, really, though, um, is the need for a departmental culture. It's hard enough to implement this. Um, it's very hard to implement it in your courses when you've got, say, eight other colleagues who do not. Um, and it's hard to give a um, – there's no particular um, lived reality in the department, let alone the college, for why people should do that. It's just that freak Professor Zambone or Professor Burkholder. I mean, right. Why should we – and then you go back to other classes and things are nice. Um, yeah. It really requires the creation of a plausibility structure, to use a uh, Peter Berger's, uh, I think, phrase, term. Um, in which this is the way that things are done in this department. I mean, mm-hmm. that, it's yep. easier to think about departments than colleges um, in that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. So you're right, there is an institutional culture. Some places are very well known uh, for doing this sort of stuff. Like Worcester um, Polytechnic, uh, They um, we had some experts from them come to campus about a month ago, and they were talking about their... Um, you know, problem-based curriculum, where they do have a whole curriculum which which is devoted to a certain type of teaching. So, you know, it can be done, but that takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of buy-in, and I think a lot of places, you know, are just not gonna be willing to do that. I mean, another factor too is, um, I think a lot of times that students just, they don't see the work, they don't appreciate the amount of work that goes into producing, um, you know, artifacts of historical thinking. So they've been brought up to think that, well, you know, doing well in history is a matter of just knowing a lot of Mm -hmm. history. Yeah. Uh, So they, they don't know. So we can forgive them for that. You know, they get a textbook. And um, it looks like it was written by God himself. Yes. You know, these are also oftentimes written in what's called the omniscient third person. Yes. There's no, there's no meta discourse. There's no hint of doubt or ambiguity. It's just what it is. Yeah. Um, and the students have no idea how that textbook came into being. You know, now you, you're working yeah. on a textbook right now, you know full well. God also, uh, likes, char-
0: God also likes chart junk. Um, and, yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> but what, So what I've really been intrigued by is the work by people like um, David Pace and Leah Sh- uh, Shopko, who um, are at Indiana University, and they're leading a movement known as decoding. And that's this idea that, you know, what, say if we write um, a journal article and we have students read that, well, you know, what went into doing that? Or, or even to make it simpler, when we read a primary source, well, what exactly are we doing? Um, and what's working against us is what is known as the curse of expertise. And, you know, that's the idea that we can't possibly understand that there are other people who don't know what we know. So it's great to become an expert, but ironically then that takes you further away from empathizing with the people that you're teaching. So at least being aware of that, but I do um, go through decoding exercises, uh, with my students, you know, very deliberately.
0: Let's get to let's get to some exercises. Um, Let's skip over. We'll talk about course designs a little bit, but um, let's get to some of the techniques. Um, I wanted to not just get to techniques first to make this all about technique because it's about there's got to be a a foundation and the techniques are just the roof of the house. Everything else has to be underneath of it. Um, But what's how do you do decoding in class? Well, let's give you let's say uh, I give you a a couple pages from the Song of Roland.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: And you, how do you how do you do that? Do students have a copy? Do you use a uh, document camera? How how does that work out?
1: Yeah, so we do a lot of close reading in my classes. That's sure. probably you know not much surprise, but um, I use a lot of what's known as um, the think aloud protocol, which again was pioneered by um, Sam Weinberg of Stanford University. Who is the
0: patron saint of this podcast? Yes, yeah, it really on, is
1: yeah uh and this is this idea that you know, as you read a text, um you have to voice whatever ideas are coming to your head at that given time. So Weinberg talks about how when you read something, there's actually two readers at work. there's just the reader. there's the one who's you know reading the words on the page and and making grammatical sense. but then there's something called the mock reader, and the mock reader is the one who's Asking questions about it, you know, looking for internal consistencies or inconsistencies, asking such questions as, well, how would an author know that? Um, And in experts, that mock reader is far more active than in in novices. So I have students do think aloud protocols. Oftentimes I'll just – the first time I introduce it, I describe the protocol to them, and I have the students give it a shot. Uh, And, you know, they they fall all over the place. It's very awkward.
0: Now, What's that? I'm sorry to ask the, the little nitty gritty of this, but how many kids mm-hmm. are in the class? Um, do you do that in small groups? I mean, yeah, in small groups.
1: Work? So, yeah, I teach at a small liberal arts college. So the class is maybe as small as 10. Mm-hmm. They may be as large as 30. So I do that in small groups, usually with, you know, threes. One person does the think aloud exercise uh, two other people observe and then I have them time it as well. And see how long it takes the students make it through the text. Now, students in my historical methods class, they they helped me come to this conclusion that a lot of novices are what we called west to east readers. And that is, they just read in linear fashion across the page. you know, they work their way down, but it's it's mostly a lateral sort of movement. Experts are south to north readers. Mm-hmm. Um you know, of course, they have to read uh, west to east, but as they're reading, they'll stop. They'll go back. So if you put eye tracking software on these people, uh, the experts would look very schizophrenic. You know, their eye movements would be all over the place. But uh, the, um, the novices would at least be a nice line across the way. So students go through this, you know, predictably, they they don't have much to say. Mostly they're reading. You know, you mentioned the Song of Brilliant. Well, they'd be reading that for content. They'd be reading it for factual material. They would assume it's true. Um, It wouldn't be a very sophisticated reading. Then what I'll do is I'll say, okay, now I'm going to read that same passage. uh, And I want you people to time me. And then we're going to compare. And I go through it. And it takes me... You know, at least three times as long as the students. And I'm able to pull out way more material. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's not that impressive. I'm a medievalist. Of course I can get more material um, out of that. But you know what? Weinberg found out that it doesn't matter, uh, that if you gave me a bunch of documents from colonial America, and I haven't taken an American history course since high school – I would be able to pull out a lot more information from those colonial documents sure. than even, say, a senior undergrad history major who is who's very interested in colonial history.
0: Yeah, Lendl uh, Calder did a, used to do a little um, parlor game kind of uh, magic trick in which she would have a professor and a student read through documents related to Custer's Last Stand. Mm-hmm. And then the professor always was much more impressive, and uh, <laughs> and all the high school teachers that he was uh, training was oh of course that's what's the surprise. And then they would give them multiple choice tests on Custer's Last Stand or the the Sioux Wars, and the professor would bomb, Did awful because the professor was an Asian historian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that to show that there was something that professor could do that the student couldn't. I, I like that timing thing because the, the students might assume that that of course you're going to be faster. Uh, That speeds the thing. But in fact, it's the soaking stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's the fact that you spend more time pulling things out of each and every clause um, than they
1: can. Right. So this is something that I emphasize to students, you know, that for any given class, well, maybe they don't have a lot of pages to read. But I warn them, look, you have to read these very slowly. And, um, you know, we practice this, but I also give them a question set, too, um, that, you know, first they have to work with it very explicitly. And the hope is that as we do this more, that framework will get into their long-term memory and they can ditch the – the question set. So that that question set is break broken down into sourcing, mm-hmm. uh, cross checking, and then imagining the setting. I like, I like uh, that it, very
0: much. That, that third yeah. one is not one I've I've used before.
1: Um, sourcing.
0: Could you review what sourcing and cross checking mean for for us?
1: Sure. So sourcing, you're trying to figure out. Okay, you know. Um, who wrote this? Uh, Maybe you know, you know, and and students get very cute on this. First, they'll just throw out a name as if that's significant. Of course it's not. We got to know who, you know, who is this person? Was he or she close to the events described or far away? Um, You know, would this person be expected to have an agenda when writing this? Is there some sort of ulterior motive? The cross-checking is that, okay, have I seen this story somewhere else? Does the story line up or is it different? So maybe the students then are comparing um, their given reading against maybe secondary sources, you know, a textbook. Maybe they're comparing it against other primary sources. No, that's work. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to take a lot of concentration. That's the sort of thing that, you know, may not be um, a lot of fun for a lot of students. It's much easier just to say, you know what, I'm just going to maybe memorize a few things from this, uh, and that's the end of it. And then imagining the setting, um, you know, this is admittedly hard, especially I teach all, you know, pre-modern courses, but uh, just trying to say, okay, you know, what might it have been like to be alive at this time? Uh, What sort of things can, you know, would be um, familiar to me as somebody in the 21st century, what would be very unfamiliar? Uh, does this fit under the rubric of sort of the human condition? Um, or, you know, were these people just so different that we would expect them to react differently? Uh, so that's, you know, the the way that I break it down. And again, it's a very, you know, clumsy, awkward process to begin with. So we, we end up going very slowly through readings, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, through practice and, and they are tested on this, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them uh, do get do get better at it.
0: You say you have a mnemonic for that. What what is it?
1: Oh, <laughs> the mnemonic. So it's sort of a Dr. Susian thing. I call that set. So, <laughs> so sourcing, cross-checking, imagining the setting. Soxchimset. Okay. Uh, so it's just a quick way to get it into their heads, and and they you know they can memorize that pretty quickly. Um, yeah.
0: You, you have uh, another ex- another approach, another exercise you do. Um, you, you use this uh, an example that you use, the, um, the Spanish epic poem El Cid. Um, oh, yeah. Which is, uh, that was really blew me away. I think that's, tell, tell about that.
1: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So I've had students read this. Uh, it's a medieval Spanish epic, kind of the, the national epic of Spain, based on a real character who died in um, 1099. But of course, the epic... It's been dramatized, you know. It's blown out of proportion, um, but it's it's telling the story of relationships. Uh, you know, one aspect of the story: relationships between Christians, Muslims, Jews. And I've had students read this, uh, you know, and write papers on it, and and they were okay, but. Um, what I was trying to get them at was, you know, what seemed to be driving these people in their interactions with one another. Because um, sometimes they're friendly, sometimes they're hostile. Uh, was it, you know, what is the role of religious difference? How are economics driving things? And the papers, you know, in previous years were all right. And then it's it. I seized on the idea that you know what we can actually go through and quantify this stuff. We can code the evidence from the text for evidence of religious motivations um, or economic motivations. We can see whether these relations in any given um, situation are positive, negative, neutral. So I had to come up with a pretty elaborate worksheet um, so that I could have students analyze this text uniformly. Uh, and by the way, I've done the same sort of um, exercise reading Machiavelli's The Prince. Hmm. Uh, and this resulted in very different papers because now students could see, okay, there's conflicting evidence here, but it's not the case that, well, all arguments are equally, equally valid, that the evidence, re- when you quantify it, seems to be leading you in certain directions. Um, so the quality of the papers was um, was a lot better, to be sure. Um, but it, it took a lot more work. Uh, students had to le- read these, uh, read the epic a lot more carefully. It took a lot of time. It was way more effort on my part. You know, it would have been far easier just to take a traditional approach to uh, teaching the text. But I think the payoff um, w- was pretty good. So I, I'm working on you know writing that up into an article right now. How long did it? Uh, how many weeks did it take you to do that? Uh, let's see. I think it was about three weeks. You know, and. Uh, that's the problem when you've got um, a lot of material to cover, you know, how much do you sacrifice to go into depth like this? And because, I, I long ago made peace with that. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm okay with eliminating um, content <laughs> to get them to think, you know, um, much more uh, on a much more sophisticated plane.
0: Because the, there's, there's the immediate uh, response to that stimulus of hearing it took three weeks is, Oh my God, I can't spend, believe that you spent three weeks on medieval Spain. Right. So, there's right. so much else to cover. Um, yeah. But that is the that's the buy in that has to be achieved. And we can talk a little bit about that at the end uh, towards the end yeah. of our conversation. Um, what's um, what's another practice that you've been implementing um, that, you know, you you, um, you find satisfactory or you think it's worth pursuing?
1: One of the things that I've done for um, a number of years now, and, and I did publish an article on this in The History Teacher uh, years back, and um, it was in a history methods course. You know, in a methods course, well, I really want them to focus on methods. Uh, so it's a capstone um, project. Uh, my campus is on a former Vanderbilt family estate. And we still have the archives of the family. Uh, The family lived there from about 1890 up through the 1950s. And, you know, with a very rich family like that, they left behind, you know, a a lot of paperwork. And these are unedited. They're at our library. So this gave me a chance to get students, you know, into an archive and they're dealing with, you know, things that are handwritten, chicken scrawl, the rest. But that in and of itself, I don't think was enough. What I did is I imposed... Uh, a certain framework on this. And I used a method um, that not even all medievalists know it, but it's called diplomatics. And it's a very, very meticulous approach to document analysis. And this is the sort of thing that, I mean, it just comes out of left field to the students. Yeah. It it has a very steep learning curve. But-
0: describe diplomatics. It's taken me back to my MA in medieval studies. That's That's old school.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really is. So I learned it from my professor who learned it when studying, you know, for a while at the Sorbonne. Um, And uh, um, as you read these documents, you you effectively break them down into what we call ACTS, A-C-T-S. And um, these are, you know, discrete actions, and each one of them has to be dated. We have to indicate where this act took place. Who all the participants were, the witnesses. We got to give a description. We have to cross-reference it very systematically with other acts for you know that's that cross-checking to see if we have consistency here. We have to give an entire manuscript tradition. It's very exacting. Yeah. Uh, but boy, when they use that method, they get so much more out of these documents. And I've had them write, you know. Um, uh, reflective essays at the end on this. And, you know, th- th- they're all pretty much the same, those essays. They say, look, this was really hard. And I, you know, I don't know if I'd do it again because it was so much work, but this got me looking at documents in just a completely new way. Mm-hmm. There's no way that that it can't do that because it's a completely unnatural, uh, method for them.
0: Yeah. I think there's, I, I really need to go back and reread all my notes and diplomatics. It, it's, um, it, it's something that I really think that, uh, American historians, I wish they knew it and could, uh, we could teach it and actually do it ourselves because I think there's a lot of possibilities in doing very old things like that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: In that sense, we wrap up. I'm, I'm curious, what would you say? Um, hopefully the, to the um, professor uh, who's um, I, I'll usually ask this question uh, when we're talking about this, um, that a professor who's wants to try something new. Um, they're a little horrified that you spent three weeks on Elseed. Um, seed. <laughs> why is this worth it?
1: Well, (laughs) I'm interested in having students, you know, approach the field of history, as I mentioned before, you know, on on a more authentic level. Um, This is what drove me originally to to teaching this way. My first few years of teaching, I was like, you know, pretty much anybody else out of grad school. Grad school, I think, prepares you very poorly for teaching. Uh,
0: shock uh, there. No shock there. Yeah
1: yeah and um my first few years, I was commuting to a campus. It was about an hour commute each direction. so at the end of every day, I always had a lot of time to reflect on uh you know how that day's class uh, class went and um i, I would i was viewing myself as a bit of a fraud. I was like, okay, I know there's way more to history than this, and yet I I am not doing it. Um, You know, I've over-designed these courses. I put in primary sources, but we never get to them. If we do, the students have no idea how to read these things. Um, So I was very fortunate in that we had a a SOTL group, a scholarship of teaching and learning group, begin at my campus right about the time I was having these crises. So I was able to work with other people. You know, I found out there are other people who are having these issues too, um, basic issues of teaching and learning. And um, you know, we had a community, and then I found out, you know what, there's a tremendous amount of scholarship, pedagogical scholarship on these things. Um, so you know, my, my advice would be, you know, seek out other people who are interested in these things. Um part of this is, you know, I I I think you need this just to know what to do. Part of it I think is pragmatic from a professional standpoint, because a lot of times these things won't go over very well um with with students. At least you know, certainly not the first time. I've had things, you know, just crash and burn. Um so you might want to get some cover if you've got if they've got um say a center for teaching and learning um who can give them some uh credibility in approaching these things and say, okay, this stuff, you know, is is based on the literature. It's, you know, yeah, may, maybe it's weird that a person is spending three weeks on this text, but you know what? We know that um, if you're going to have students get into issues of primary source analysis, well, you know, they're going to need that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's some very pragmatic things that that people can do. But as well, um, I, I wouldn't tell anyone to do this just because, oh, they heard a podcast and this guy Burkholder's doing it. Uh, you know, You've got to develop, they've got to develop their own sort of a philosophy of teaching here and what they want students to get out. So I, I had to do that years ago and figure out what is it exactly that I want my students to get out of any given class or an entire history curriculum. And those learning goals actually transcend the field of history. Um, and, and that's made things a lot easier for me. Um, you know, for instance, I want them to be able to, to write well. Well, that's something that's not inherent only to, um, to history courses. I want them to be aware of their own thinking and learning, you know, this whole metacognition. Well, I think that's something that would help students across uh, any sort of uh, curriculum. So there are ways, I think, to reach out to colleagues in other fields as well. There's a lot of synergy there yeah. um, if, if you're on the lookout for it. Yeah.
0: Um, you've written a lot on this, on this subject. Where can people uh, find out more of what you've written? Uh, Get in touch with you, perhaps for advice or clarification or something of that
1: nature. Sure. Well, you know, I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on any of that stuff. (laughs) Um, I'm not afraid of technology. I'm just not on it. Um, My website would probably be my faculty website at Fairleigh Dickinson University, um, which is just fdu.edu. And then if they do a search for my name, Burkholder, um, you know, that'll pop up. So that, that's that got a bunch of my um, publications there and my email address is there. So I welcome anybody who, who wants to get in touch.
0: Well, that's great. And I will have a link to that on the uh, show notes uh, for this podcast. Um, and that brings it to a conclusion, I think. This has been Historically Thinking. Uh, Peter Burkholder, thanks so much for being our guest.
1: Okay. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.